Yeah. We're going to go back to origins. Also, following what we hear this week and really next week from Chris's sermon as well, we're going to be talking more with leaders about a covenant that we're writing up together. Uh, we talked about it in our study. It wasn't even designed. It just kind of happened. And so we're going to fill you in on that as well. Also, we're going to have a guest here next week from North Carolina. He's a pastor up in the Durham area. Him and his wife will be here, so that'll be really, really exciting. Uh, those are the basic amounts. Giving online on the app, it's all there, website. That hasn't changed. Uh, and we're good to go. We're good to go. All right, guys. Welcome back. If you have a Bible, open up to the <clears throat> third to the last Bible in a book in the Bible um, of the Old Testament. Go ahead and open up there. Hint, it's not Haggai. Open up to Nehemiah 5. Sorry, that's a canonical joke and not a lot of people get that. That's okay. I'll, I'll, I'll get there eventually. Someone will let me teach that. This is a good sermon in the sense that it's going to allow me to talk about two things. <clears throat> it's going to allow me to talk about the office of the prophet and the generosity of the Torah. Two things that I really, really love. We see as the, the basically the ink has barely dried on the page when we turn from external conflict to internal conflict. So last week we talked about all the external conflict that these people were facing. And now all of a sudden we go and it's not been very good at the, on the home front either. There's a lot of internal conflict that we'll, we'll have to talk about. But by way of introduction, let me talk about a couple things. The office of the prophet. We tend to think about the prophet and relegate it to those books that we call the prophets. So Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Jeremiah, and the book of the Twelve, the, the Twelve Little Guys. And we relegate prophet to those guys or Elijah and Elisha. We talk about that as well. That's not the way that the first century Jewish people thought about that. In fact, if you turn to the book of Acts, Peter talks about David being a prophet. In the writing of his own psalms, David was a prophet. Abraham, Moses, obviously Moses, it, that's not much of a stretch because the Messiah is the prophet like Moses. My point is, prophet is a broader term in first century mind and in Old Testament mind, in, in the minds of the people. So, what is the basic function of a prophet? The basic function, to boil it all down, is not necessarily to give predictive prophecy all the time. His basic function is to take the first five books of Moses, know it very well, and if something happens, to call the people to repentance. To call the people to repentance. Nehemiah goes full bore prophet in this section. And I see it for two reasons. He calls the people to return to Torah. You won't see the word repentance in here, but what he's doing is calling them to repent and return to Torah, to the law. The other thing is at the end of the chapter in verse 13, he gives a prophetic sign, and that sign bears the authority of Yahweh himself. 
So that's the office of the prophet. The other thing is the generosity, mainly of God, that we see in the Torah. You can see that mainly in, I have a couple that are directly linked to um, this section, Uh, Leviticus 25, 35 through 38, and Deuteronomy 15. I'll read Deuteronomy 15 here in a minute. But think about that for a minute. Just, Just think. Generosity in the Torah. As New Testament believers, we don't tend to think that. We tend to think of the law as harsh. We tend to think of God in the Old Testament as wrathful. You might not say that, but reading through some of the laws, not understanding the ancient Near Eastern context, it's easy to walk away and go, wow, God was really strict. I'm glad I don't live in that time. And we fail to see that if we had lived in that time, we would have been really grateful. Because God chose a nation to make the will, his will known to the whole world. In fact, there's an Assyrian ascription where a king is crying out to any god. The, the poem is called A Prayer to Any God. And he says in that prayer, if you can hear me, whatever god you are, please hear me. I don't know if I've broken a law, I don't know if I've eaten something that I shouldn't. I don't know if I've done anything against you or against any other God. And basically, it's like six pages of this guy crying out to any God that would hear him. It reminds me of Mars Hill, the unknown God, just in case. It's the same thing in, in, the, in this Assyrian prayer. He doesn't know if he's transgressed or not. Yahweh didn't make his people guess. He gives plenty of examples of this is how you should live as a nation. You don't have to wonder. And if you look through them, and if you understand the ancient Near Eastern context, they're so different than Hammurabi's laws. They're so different. God goes out of his way to protect the poor, the widows, and the foreigners, the sojourners. He goes out of his way. The other thing that he does is he makes a lot of laws that take care of women. One of those laws, if you read in Leviticus 11 or 12, I can't remember the exact place, is the law of Uh, after a woman gives childbirth to either a son or a daughter. That section tends to be viewed as God thinks childbirth is gross and he's, he's really harsh on women. The reason I say that is because If you give birth to a boy, you have to wait 60 days before you can be purified. If you give birth to a girl, God thinks they're doubly gross, so you have to wait 90 days. And that couldn't be further from the truth. Remember, the language pure and unpure doesn't mean you've sinned. it, It should be translated ritually clean or or ritually pure or ritually 
allowed to access the tabernacle. That's, that's, that's what Leviticus is all about. How do I get into God's house? Well, the first thing you have to do is you have to give a whole burnt offering because God's not letting anybody in his house unless that whole thing is burnt on the altar to take care of his wrath. That is the first thing that happens. And then all the other sacrifices follow that. Impure and pure language is just, can I get into God's house? That's all that it means. After a woman gives birth, she, while she's giving birth, she loses a lot of blood. Blood is a symbol, loss of blood is a symbol of death. Blood is a symbol of life, so loss of it is a symbol of death. And God is the God of life, and he is not going to be associated with death. So, when she loses blood, if it's a boy, 60 days. If it's a girl, 90 days. Why? What is she not allowed to do? She's not allowed to go to the tabernacle for 60 days or, 10, or 90 days. This does a couple things. One of the things it does is it sets up Mary taking Jesus to the temple and fulfilling that law. The other thing that it does is it's maternity leave. The woman does not have any responsibilities other than to bond with her child because God knows and God cares for women. And it's all through the law because he's good and he's gracious. We're going to see this in this chapter. We're going to see, I'll just go ahead and read Deuteronomy 15, where we start to see the generosity. The main illustration of generosity we'll see next week when Chris preaches of of Nehemiah's own leadership in this. But Deuteronomy 15, verses 7 through 9, this chapter is talking about the sabbatical year. The year of Jubilee is mentioned in this chapter. But verse 7, if among you... One of your brothers should become poor. In any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care, lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart, and you say, the seventh year... The year of release is near, and your eye look grudgingly grudgingly on your poor brother, and you give him nothing. And he cried to the Lord against you, and you be guilty of the sin. So it's pretty straightforward. If there's someone poor among you, give him what he needs. And in this context, this is the Sabbath year. So remember, in the seventh year, people are to be set free. Slaves, if they have a debt, they are to be set free. And in this case, God says, take care, which this reminds me so much of the warnings in Hebrews. Take care, lest there be an unworthy thought. Don't even think it. The seventh year is coming. He's going to get off scot-free. The other thing is, he's thinking, the seventh year is coming. I'm not giving that guy anything because I'm not going to get paid back. 
seventh year is so close, I'm just going to have to release him from his debt. God says, don't even think that. I don't care if it's the day before the seventh year. You give him what he needs. Because God cares. God will always, always take care of the poor. So in Nehemiah, in verses 1 through 5, chapter 5, we have the accusation. So here's how I've broken this passage down. I've broken it down by basically it being a prophetic court case. So you have the people's accusation and outcry, and then you have um, Nehemiah's indictment against them, and then you have Nehemiah's sign against them. So if we look in verses 1 through 5, we have three separate cries from the people. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, here's the first one, with our sons and daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, here's the second one, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there was those who said, here's the third one, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is the flesh of our brothers, our children as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. These people have given their time, their effort, and in some cases, everything that they have to build this wall. We saw last week that there was external pressures. This week, we're going to see that there's internal pressures. So everything that you can think about as far as application-wise from what Tyler preached last week, as far as external conflict, it's going to be almost the same when it comes to internal conflict. Just because there's an external battle doesn't mean there's an, there isn't an internal battle at the same time. We're in constant warfare, and sadly, that happens on the inside of the church as well, and it's the hardest. So the first cry, verses 1 through 2, food is not being shared. They have no money because of the Lord's work. Remember, these people are from all over Israel. And some people have left their homes, their farms, their jobs to come build this wall and more than likely left their family back at home. And the dating of this is probably around August or September. So that's grape harvest season. So the men are back in Jerusalem. Remember, they were told to stay there and guard at night and work during the day. And during grape harvest season, they need someone to get the grapes. And the first cry is that we don't have enough food. We don't have enough food to sustain our larger families. <laughs> that was perfect timing. <laughs> Sorry. And it says in verse 2, 
For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we have many, so let us go get grain that we may eat and keep alive. So what's the issue? They, they have enough people to go get the grain. The issue is people aren't sharing. The issue is their fields are being mortgaged, so they don't have the fields to get the money anymore. You see that in the second cry. They're selling all that they have just so they can eat and do the Lord's work. This all centers around them building this wall. The other thing is there's a famine we don't know the exact reason, or because <clears throat> a lot of the times in the prophets you'll see a famine is the direct result of the people's sin. There's no indication in this text that that's what's going on. It could just be a regular old famine. It's, it's August and September, which Israel's rain season is like clockwork. You can, you can predict, even today, you can predict when it's going to rain in Israel. And it's very specific and famine is not uncommon in the land of Israel. I think that's what's going on. It's just a regular old famine. What's the other thing that's happening? These people are selling their families to pay the king's tax. So we have food not being shared. We have them selling their farms, mortgaging their farms so that they can eat. And then they have them selling their own family to pay off the debt so that they can pay the king's tax. <clears throat> it's not uncommon for people to sell their children in this time to pay off debt, to put them into uh, slavery so that they can pay off debt. Remember from last week, this is not akin to uh, North American slavery or African slavery in, in our time, but this is indentured servitude. Slaves typically were uh, taken off the battlefield and forced to work, or people sold each other, sold their kids, sold the husband would go into slavery, sometimes the wife, in order to pay off a debt. And when that debt was done, they were free. In fact, that's why God built the seventh year into the law, so that someone wouldn't be in, indebted to someone for, the re for their whole life. And the year of Jubilee is supposed to set everything, every, everything free. Everything that's enslaved is free. There are laws that govern this type of slavery in the Torah. But what's happening here? If it's okay, what's happening here? Well, it seems like it's extortion, interest. That is forbidden in the Torah. Interest is forbidden. If someone is indebted, you cannot take something on top of what they are paying back. God is very, very particular about that. In fact, in Ezekiel 22, verse 12, this is one of the reasons they went into exile. Ezekiel 22, verse 12 says, In you they take bribes to shed blood. You take interest and profit and make gain of your neighbors by extortion. But me you have forgotten, declares the Lord God. Behold, I will strike my hand at the disobedient 
And he goes on to talk about them going into exile for this very thing. Friends, God is not different today. He is not different. He is the same God. If you doubt that, then I dare you to find the poor and mistreat them. I dare you to find the vulnerable and take advantage of them and see if God doesn't do something akin to the Torah. He is the same. The Israelites from all over have given up their regular jobs to build this wall. They should be taken care of by their brothers, but they are not, and this violates Torah. These kinds of actions are the reason they went into exile. We are commanded to take care of the poor among us. James 2, 8 through 13 convicts us of breaking Torah. James 2, 8 through 13 convicts us of breaking Torah if we show partiality and do not take care of the poor. We must be generous with what God has given us and take care of the poor. Next. Nehemiah's prophetic indictment. Verse 6. Nehemiah's response when he hears everything. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. This is the first time that Nehemiah, it, it is recorded that Nehemiah is angry. Think about that for a minute. We just dealt with a whole chapter of external conflict of enemies who hate God and Nehemiah is not angry once but he is very angry when it comes to his own people why why not the external but the internal because they should know better they should know better. I mean, isn't it true that it's much more heart-wrenching to have someone within God's church hurt you other than someone on the outside, an unbeliever? You're almost not shocked at the unbeliever's treatment of you. I'm not. But when it's someone on the inside, when it's someone who should know better, and they do that, it hurts. It's the kind of thing you need therapy for. It hurts. He's angry, and he builds a case. He builds a reeve, is the Hebrew word, against the people. This is a very specific word for basically a case. He's angry, when he hears their outcry in these words, but he stops. Verse 7, I took counsel with myself and I brought the reeve, the charges, against the nobles and the officials. Friends, anger is a normal emotion. It's okay. As long as it's directed at the right thing. I think of Jesus when he was angry and went into the temple and flipped the tables and 
drove the animals out. I often think of that, but I also often think, well, he's perfect God-man, and he could do it. It is appropriate. Righteous anger is appropriate. But I think it's wise here that that Nehemiah includes, or, or Ezra, whoever wrote this, includes that he stopped and he took counsel, he sought wisdom with himself. How often have we been angry and lashed out immediately? Far too often. With four small children? Way too often. But he stopped. He took counsel. He thought about it. And then he brought his charges against the nobles and the officials. And he says to them, you are extracting interest. See, there we, ha- there we have it. This is the reason. This is the reason he's so angry. Each from his brother. So what does he do? He calls a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. He calls a great assembly. He calls all the people together, the people who have the outcry and the people who are responsible for the outcry. He calls a great assembly. This, this word's going to show up again, time and time again. The last time it shows up is when they call a great assembly to teach Torah to the people. But this one is not a positive one. He calls a great assembly so that he can hold the leadership, he can hold their feet to the fire. And he's going to bring their, the reeve against them, and the reeve is going to, the case is going to be based in the Torah. And he says to them, you're extracting. You're exacting interest. You're taking money. You're pulling money from nowhere. These people don't have it. They're giving up everything they have. And you're making a profit on it. On your very own family, you're making a profit. On the people of God. And he says... In verse, verse 8, we, as far as we're able, have brought our Jewish brothers back. So from the human side of things, Nehemiah sees himself as someone who brought back the Jewish people through God's call, God's plan, and God's power. Nehemiah, as far as human agency is concerned, brought back the people of God with, with help. And he says, we have brought them back who were sold to the nations. When the exile happened, everybody was scattered. Not everybody went to Babylon. Not not everybody ended up in Persia. People were scattered and sold to the nations as slaves, just like Joseph. And Nehemiah says, we've brought them back, but now you're acting like these Gentile nations. You're selling your own people so you can get rich, so you can have all the food, so you can have the money, so you can have all the land. They were silent, 
and could not find a word to say. This is beautiful. This is great. If you know anything of the other prophets, when they brought an accusation against the people based in Torah, they got arguments. Or they got death threats. And some were killed. This is beautiful. They don't know what to say. They know he's right. They know he's right. They know what the Torah says, and what they've been doing is wrong. Verse 9, Nehemiah speaks again. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not walk in the fear of God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Nehemiah's charge renders them silent, and he says, this isn't good. You should be walking in the fear of God. Think about that too. Walking in the fear of God. Is that a New Testament concept? To fear God? Yeah. However, here's how it's often explained. I've heard this before too many times, and it just, it irritates me. (laughs) Essentially, what it means to fear God today, fear slash can mean reverence. Fear slash reverence. So you're to reverence God, fear and reverence and awe. That's the other word. Reverence and awe him, and um, you don't have to be afraid of him. That's true. That's part of it. But there's the other side of the coin that mean, that, that says... Um, You need to be afraid of him, too, at times. Like I said earlier, if if you are, if you take advantage of the poor or the needy or the widow or the orphan or the unborn, you need to be afraid. You need to be afraid. Jesus is not some long-haired hippie who who came and spouted just love. He is the eternal God who showed up on Mount Sinai and who had to shield Moses lest his glory consume him. I don't know how it works, but somehow God's person emits this light that is not just, it, not, it, it just doesn't illuminate things, but it's so powerful that if, you, if God isn't merciful and veils it somehow or filters it somehow, if he just lets it go, it will consume your body. It will take you out. It's amazing. I love the Sinai story because of that reason. He shows up in just awesome power. And what was the people's response? They were afraid. This mountain is, it's pitch black around this mountain. There's loud horns going off everywhere. There's lightning, and this mountain seems like it's on fire. 
I would be afraid too. And God says, put a boundary around the mountain. Don't even let an animal touch it. It is holy ground. Moses, let me see. I want to see your glory. You can't. No one can see it and live. But I will filter my glory and I will pass by you. Jesus is the same. He is exalted at the right hand of the Father in full, unfiltered glory. We see it in Revelation 4 and 5. He's magnificent. And you should be afraid of him at times. If you live any way you want, you should be afraid of him. You're not guaranteed anything. Let me word that another way. There are guarantees in the new covenant. But if you live any way you want, you're not guaranteed anything. You shouldn't be. Fear of the Lord is a New Testament concept. Verse 12. Then they said, here's their response, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. They obey. They obey. No argument, no pushback, no threats. They obey. That's the other thing. If there's internal conflict and you have to confront someone and they obey, it's so sweet. On the other hand, when they disobey and fight, it's heart-wrenching. Here we have a very sweet response by the people. We will restore these. We're going to give everything back. Now to make sure, Nehemiah says, I called the priests and made these people swear to do as they had promised. Just going to make sure. Just going to make sure. The priests come, the people swear to the priests, which legally solidifies it. So the priests are the ones who uphold Torah, and they are the judges and the ones who basically are there as the witness to, you legally swore to give this back. You legally swore to let these people go. You legally swore to share your food. So this is the legal side of it. And then, in the last few verses, we have the prophetic side of it. So, priesthood, prophet. Verse 13, I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praise the Lord, and the people did as they promised. There's an interesting word play going on here. Well, not word play. Interesting word whatever going on here. There are three shakes to the three cells. So 
If you look earlier in the chapter, there are three things that are sold, and here there are three shakes, three times that he says, you will be shaken out. What's interesting about this word is when God is the subject, subject of to shake off, it always reflects judgment. Always. When God shakes something off, it's not good. Exodus 14.27 is the first time that it shows up. And it, here it speaks of Yahweh shaking off Pharaoh. So if you remember, Exodus 14 is the Red Sea incident, the Reed Sea incident. And God shakes off Pharaoh, i.e. opens up the waters, creates walls, lets the people walk through on dry land while he blocks Pharaoh and his army with the pillar of fire. Who, I don't know how long that took for them to get across, but they couldn't get by it. They couldn't get by the pillar of fire. And as soon as the people are done, Pharaoh and his chariots try to race through, and God shakes them off by wiping out his army. He, at this point, had decimated that nation. Totally destroyed it. Economically, he made their gods look like a joke, and now he took out their army by shaking it off. The Psalms pick up this same language. So what's he doing here? He's giving a prophetic sign. You know what those are. Remember in Ezekiel, where he had to lay on his side for three years? Was it three years? It was a long time, and it was a sign. He also did this in chapter 4 of Ezekiel. I think it's chapter 4. He made this little panoramic Israel, and he made all these little tools and, and toys, basically, and enacted all of this uh, chaos on this panorama to show that it was going to be destroyed by the exile. There's some other ones that I won't mention. But uh, the prophetic sign essentially carries the authority of Yahweh. Yahweh says, I have a message for you, and I also have something for you to enact out. And in acting that out, the people will get your message. Whether they obey or not is a different, is a different issue. But here's your message, and I want you to enact it. I want you to act it out. This is what, this is what Nehemiah is doing. They promised they legally swore to give it all back, and Nehemiah just wants to double down on it. He takes the authority of Yahweh, shakes his garment, and says, if you don't do this, if you don't do it, may Yahweh shake out your whole household. May you lose everything. May you lose everything. These people that you've been taking from have nothing. You've taken it. If you don't give it back like you've sworn, then God is going to shake you out, and he's going to take everything from you. So the people hear it, and the assembly says, may it be so. Amen. And then they praise the Lord, and the people did as they promised. So here's some few thoughts that I have, applicational thoughts that I have, just running back through this section. Nehemiah, the leader, 
is the example of a Torah-saturated, God's Word-saturated individual that when he sees something against God's people, he knows exactly what scriptures to draw on. Leaders, we need to lead in this. We need to be men and women saturated by the word. And that does conclude the Torah. Just throw that out there. It's okay to be angry, but think about it. Think about it first. Take time and think about it. This one, I got this from Chris. Satan runs along the lines of external conflict and internal relational conflict. So think about the last chapter and think about this chapter. Satan runs along the lines of external conflict and internal relational conflict. He will find a way to get into your relationships. And most of the time, he's behind the external as well. Just remember that. The other thing, do what you're going, do what you say you're going to do. I can't help but see that in this section, there's a whole, a whole portion just about being a person of your word. And that cuts deep. Be the kind of person that you say you are. Be the kind of person that you say you are. And the last thing, needs that need to be met, need to be met. Keep your eyes open. Look for the poor. Look for the orphan. Look for the widow. There's going to be people in our ministry who might not look that way, but they are that way. And it might not it might not mean um, financially poor. It could be other things. Just keep your eyes open. Be sensitive to the Spirit. And let's take care of the poor and the needy. This is God's word for us. May he add to it and may we be obedient to it. Let's pray. Father, your word is good. It's powerful, it's sharp, it cuts, it mends, it heals, it breaks, and we need all of those. I ask, Father, that you would help us be men and women of the word, that we would be examples, and help us know who to take care of. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me send you out with this blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen. Amen.